Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series at the Abbey, and Vicky Featherstone, artistic director of the Royal Court Theatre and director of Cypress Avenue by David Ireland, currently playing on the Peacock stage. From Payne's Play Theatre Company to artistic director of the National Theatre of Scotland, Vicky Featherstone's work has always generated around the forging and supporting of new writing. It was as founding artistic director of the National Theatre of Scotland that Blackwatch was born and bred international acclaim, achieving award-winning heights. In this podcast, Vicky talks about the co-production that is Cypress Avenue, one of the best plays she's ever read, the alchemy of writers, the meaning of diversity, and a word or two about the new directors of the Abbey Theatre. Oh, and last of all last words is that the talk series has returned to its humble beginnings with our unique guerrilla recording style, soundtracked with all the sound effects of a living, breathing rehearsal space. I like to think that the tapping noise that punctuates our conversation is that of a neighbouring writer mining and mining the questions of her play. Now that sounds about right. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome, Vicky Featherston. Hello. You're currently in Dublin rehearsing the last week of Cypress Avenue, which is an Abbey Theatre commission co-produced with the Royal Court Theatre. So now that the disclaimer is finished, <laughs> um, how does that union begin? And then how is that... How is the work divided up? Um, well, for me, uh, being artistic director of the Royal Court, I've always been a huge fan of the Abbey and its kind of history and its importance in terms of theatre culture anyway. Um, but uh, the actual history of this play is that when I was at the National Theatre of Scotland, Fear got in contact with me uh, and said that he had commissioned David Ireland to write this play um, and that David had suggested that I might be somebody who would be helpful to work on it with David. Of course, I was based in Scotland, David lives in Scotland, so we started working on the play together. I completely fell in love with it. Um, and then when I moved to the Royal Court, it felt like a really straightforward marriage, really, um, for, uh, for it to be a co-production and the play to start here and then go to the Royal Court. So that seed began... We're talking maybe four or five years ago? Yeah, four point? years ago, yeah. probably. We first ever had the first conversation about it. What can you tell us about Cypress Avenue at this stage? Yeah, well, um, as a piece of writing, as a play, I think it's one of the best plays I've ever read. Um, it's always difficult to say that when you're in your last week of rehearsal because there's something sort of slightly arrogant about that. And I don't mean it's going to be the best thing anyone's ever seen, necessarily, I would hope it was. But, but for me, just the thing that struck me about the writing was this fearlessness that David has to take an idea... Um, and to and to create a story around an idea that every single beat of the play just goes further and further and further and further and explores and explores and explores that idea. And I think that's the sign of a great writer, somebody who just keeps mining and mining the question of their play. Um, so, so literally, with every single line, you're kind of every single pore of you is becoming more and more alert to the questions of the play, and that's thrilling uh, to achieve that. Um, I also found that the character of Eric. Um, Miller that Stephen Ray plays is an extraordinarily fragile, broken person um, and um, I'd never seen a play or really read anything where, I, where, where a kind of Ulster loyalist's brittleness, questions, uh, sense of futility about the future post the Troubles uh, and the peace process has, be, has been so kind of brilliantly laid out um, and there's something kind of heartbreaking about it and the kind of violence at its centre, the violence of a kind of country or a people who have lost so much in order to maintain um, uh, maintain their, their sense of loyalism and, and, you know, the kind of Ulster that they believe in, um, but at what cost, is incredibly 
set out, I think. Did David Ireland have that? Yeah, I mean, when I, yeah. So when I first read the play, I read, I don't know what draft I read, but it was an early draft. And, you know, with any great piece of writing, the gesture of the play is already there. So, you know, the things that we now look at the play and go, wow, this is extraordinary, that was all still there. All my role has been, and also, you know, Aideen Howard was part of this, and Jessica and Fiek and everybody, has just been to help hone that and ask the questions for David that it becomes as sharp, as sharp, as sharp as possible. But David had it all, really. We've, we're just bystanders for his brilliance. And when you, when you reference, I suppose, that David has had the courage of his convictions and he just keeps going further and further and yeah. further, there is the reference that... The other character in this play, the little baby, yes. um, looks like Jerry Adams. Yes. The legality around that. Yes. How how does that even work? How do you uh, operate with that sensitivity? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, in that position, even though it's a co-production, I haven't had to take huge responsibility for that because that's something that the board at the Abbey and Fiach and Jessica have been incredibly brilliant about. And I think what the Abbey always wanted was that what the play should be as extreme. And, um, and as outspoken as the play needs to be as a piece of art. But actually, how do you kind of mitigate the risk within that in terms of what the play's saying? Of course, what's important about the play is that it's not what the writer is saying or what I'm saying or what the Abbey's saying. It's what this really messed up character who goes on a kind of psychotic episode due to kind of post-traumatic stress of his religion and his city having been at war. Mm. It's what he says. So it's a really difficult thing to make the case in a legal situation that actually this is not our view, this is the view of a character that is undergoing a kind of episode, a psychotic episode, and is full of hatred, and is broken and brutalised. Um, so that's a really difficult balance. But we've had to make quite a few changes to the play um, as it's gone on, just in terms of the advice from the lawyers. Now, not only, as you say, you're, you're not only director of Cypress Avenue, you are also artistic director of the aforementioned Royal Court Theatre, so what does that title enable you to do? <laughs> Have a lot of fun and not sleep very much. Well, I mean, you know, the, it's always a dangerous thing. I mean, you know this at the Abbey about talking too much about the history of somewhere because... Um, one of the things I always say is we have to stand on the shoulder of giants, but really we always have to be looking forward. But, you know, to kind of inherit the theatre that started in 1956, which was about rejecting the kind of elite form of British theatre up to that point, the sort of form of theatre which felt like it was always looking backwards and to bring new stories and new ideas and new forms both from Europe. You know, the first Brecht players performed in London and performed at the Royal Court. Arthur Miller was first performed at the Royal Court. Ionesco, um, Beckett, um, you know, as well as then discovering these new playwrights and giving them this opportunity is an extraordinary legacy. Um, and for me, you know, I, I've always, always believed in the urgency of theatre. I've all, I really believe theatre is a kind of place where we create community, where people come together to witness something, where we watch a story and we feel something for a character that we wouldn't otherwise feel. We have empathy, which for me is the most kind of sophisticated human emotion, the most important human emotion. So to be in a place where what I'm doing is being able to invite writers who are kind of shaman to come and tell the stories that they feel we need to tell to make us look at our lives differently, is, I feel so fortunate about that. It's extraordinary. And, and who do you consult with or do you have to consult other people on your programme for the year? Because um, I'm, I'm conscious of that um, and I'm also conscious of, I suppose, what you 
think the public want to see and yeah. then what your vision is yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, well, what's interesting is that when George Devine, who was the person who created the Royal Court, what he said that was that he wanted to create a theatre that was ahead of public taste. Because, of course, if you create something that is within public taste, with all due respect to the public, it will end up being conservative with a small c because we don't really know, we can't really imagine things we haven't seen before. So if you say to somebody, what would you like to see? They can only say something they've already seen. And that's how television drama works, you know. So what he wanted to create was something which was an ahead of public taste. But you need to bring, be able to bring an audience to that. So it's a very interesting balance about trying to create theatre or writers that want to push the boundaries of what writing for theatre is and what the form of theatre looks like and, what, and who theatre is for and then try to build audiences and keep them with it. But luckily the Royal Court isn't too big, it's like 360 seats and then we have the theatre upstairs which is 80 to 100 seats. Um, so, so the risk in terms of a sort of cavernous auditorium being empty while we have some kind of weird play on that we think is changing the world that no one else agrees with is, is, is not that great. Um, but there are a lot, there's a lot of work that the Royal Court's produced and I've produced over the time that people aren't as convinced by at the time as we are and then actually often people go, oh actually in retrospect that piece did say something about so and so. One of the big things for me about the Royal Court is that, you know, it's always been called the Writers' Theatre, is that actually we also have to encourage the work that goes on to be work that is also influencing other writers. So, you know, writers like Beckett and Edward Bond and Carol Churchill and Sarah Kane, they're playwrights who who have changed the world of playwriting for other writers as well, and that's a really important part of my vision. The other thing for me is that I feel, especially living in London, you know, we live in one of the most diverse multicultural cities in the world, and I, I'm really interested in what diversity really means. And, you know, we talk about diversity as meaning geographical diversity, as being cultural diversity, as being gender, as being sexuality, as being... Disabled, disability, and not yet disabled, as somebody once said to me, rather than able-bodied. That's great, oh, isn't it? Yeah, true. Disabled and not yet disabled, because eighty yeah. percent of people who become disabled were not disabled when they were. But you know, so for me, that kind of sense of equality and who are the stories for is really, really important. And and so what I really want is that we create work and the whole organisation is run by people who represent the city that we live in, whatever that means. Um, I'm also really interested in challenging what we think are the narratives, you know, because. For all of us, for so long, you know, we have been... Th that it's about in terms of who has the power and who owns the narrative. And for all of us, for so long, that's been owned by a certain group of people, you know, um, who look a certain way, who behave in a certain way, who speak to each other. Um, and we've all become seduced by that. So you either reject that and become kind of anarchic against it, or actually that is what you're sort of brought up into. So for me, it's really interesting about how do we disturb story what do we think is the story that needs to be told? It's an amazing line in Cypress Avenue when, um, when um, Slim, one of the characters in it, is talking about, um, you know, wh wh why do all the best films, why, why do they all have, why do they all use the words Fenian? He doesn't use it derogatory, but um, why are all the best films have Fenians in an interview with a vampire? You know, he's, Tom Cruise is playing a Fenian. And he said, when will there be a Protestant vampire film? When will our stories be told? And obviously he's psychotic, and not, mm. but it's a really interesting thing about who owns the story and who needs the story to be told. But can you please uh, everyone all the time? Like you, you No, definitely not, yeah. and you shouldn't. I think it's wrong to try and please everybody all the time, but if your vision is clear and the endeavour is clear and the mission is clear, it's acceptable within that not to please everybody all the time. Okay. So if you're saying... I'm trying to create a range of different kind of work to appeal to different people. I'm trying to question what narratives we have, trying to push the boundaries of theatre. 
and somebody doesn't like something, you'll go, well, that's fine, but can you understand why I'm doing it? And as long as I think I can demonstrate that it was within what that vision is, then it's fine. If people just got to understand why you programmed that, then I'm failing. Okay. And is that a blueprint that you bring to, to every role that you start at? Um, so when you started... When you started from scratch, the National Theatre yeah, of Scotland, yeah. like where do you begin yeah. with that? Well, that was a huge thing, exactly that same thing, um, which was about saying, if our mission is clear and it's a transparent mission, and we were trying to, you know, take work at all scales to the biggest possible audience across Scotland, but we also wanted to push kind of internationalism within it. We wanted, you know, so when we did something very popular at the King's Theatre for like 2,000 people which kind of veered towards more sort of panto style that's fine because we wanted that many people to understand what the National Theatre was and then we did a, so when we did a sort of more unusual sort of Belgian theatre director sort of piece that not so many people came to that was because we were also trying to push the boundaries of what that theatre is I think it's really important for artistic director to be able to demonstrate and declare what that vision is and I think that vision always needs to be interrogated by the artistic director and their artistic team and something that I've always done since I was at Payne's Plan National Theatre Squad is about have a team of people around me who I support, but who don't who support me, but don't necessarily agree with me, who I know are better than me, who I know could do the job better than me if they could be bothered to have the sleepless night, but they don't. And they prefer getting the best bits of the job, and that they will always say, "But why? That why, Vicky? Why? Or what are we doing that?" And that is so important because, although it's my taste, and although I have to take responsibility for it. There is no way I will be broad enough. I, you, one is narrow. You know. Yeah, and you can't surround yourself by yes people. Absolutely because, not. And how much then do you have to consider the bottom line? So then you have a, you know, one show has a full packed um, auditorium and the other, you know, is on a ferry or something, yeah. you know. Um, I suppose you, you have to be answerable about your problem. Yeah, you have to be yeah. totally answerable. Um, but for me, then again, it's about that flexibility. So I think there is, I, I cannot bear predictability. It literally makes me want to kill myself. Um, and I can't bear a kind of shape there because, oh, that's that show that has six weeks and that show, da, da, da. I think it's really important that we're all, we all keep each other on our toes and we all go, what's the best thing for this piece of theatre? So what that would mean for me, for example, is that, you know, if you look at something like The Royal Court, you would say, well, you know, we did a play by Debbie Tucker Green called Hang that Marianne John Baptiste was in, which was an extraordinary play, an incredible piece of theatre. Um, it was very fragile, it was very beautiful, very difficult and emotional. Um, um, and, you know, I, it got a fantastic audience, but I wasn't going to expect it to be something. I never needed it to transfer to make more money than what we wanted it to do. But then I knew that we had Hangmen coming. You know, so for me, it's very much about with integrity, but with flexibility about saying this show can carry the risk for another show uh, in whatever way. So for me, when I programme, it's about all of those things together. And hopefully people then understand that and don't think, oh, you've sold out, that show seems really populous. No, that show's really populous in order that I can do some weird thing that people don't understand. Of course. Where does this passion and curiosity come from? Um, do you, were your family a theatrical family? Or? <laughs> Only like every family at the kitchen table. Very theatrical. Really? My dad was a chemical engineer and worked for BP Chemicals and my mum was a nurse, so nothing conventional and very ordinary. But I think the thing that did happen was that my dad's job took him around the world. We travelled around a lot. So me and my, I'm the oldest, me and my brother and sister were always being thrown into new situations. So I think... Some people really respond to that, and some people wish that they could just stay in one place, and we really responded to it. So I have a, you know, that's perfect for theatre, always creating new sort of worlds and communities. But I also think, I mean, going back, I think for me it's really about empathy, it's about stories, and, you know, there is something extraordinary and sort of 
it's like it's like alchemy almost that a writer has an idea. You know, our writers live in the same world as I do. And we read the same newspapers, and then I go out and have a pint and then go to bed. And writers go to bed, and this thing starts to turn from a picture in a newspaper or an idea or something that someone said into something which can become three-dimensional and change an audience. And that, that I think that is extraordinary, and I'm addicted to that. But mind you, you're the very person that reads an article in the newspaper uh, and creates uh, and commissions Blackwatch. Yeah, but I'd have to ask the writer to do it because I couldn't do it. Okay. So it's about saying to Greg Merck, I've, I've, this is a really important thing. I don't know how to make the alchemy happen. You will understand it at some point, and he went, yeah, and he follows it. But so, you have yeah. an eye for that, though. Yeah, and you, you're yeah, aware yeah. that you have. Well, an eye. that's about things that I think are politically or emotionally important in the world about what stories should be being told. You know. Do all your risks pay off? No. Well, well, actually, do they all pay off? Yes, because you know, as Beckett said, fail better. So in that respect, every risk pays off because even the ones that come back and bite you on the bum, you have learnt from. So I, I think not taking risks is the worst failure in theatre and in life. And I actually begin to feel slightly insecure if I don't feel I'm taking risks. If I feel I'm within a comfort zone and I sort of know where I am, I know it's going to be shit or I start to feel really insecure about it. I feel much more confident when I'm making a decision which is going into something I don't know or I don't understand and bringing people with me to do that. So you it's get weird, insecure when you're in secure situations? Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit like, this is just like smug, and it will be mediocre. And it may be fine, people might like it, or it might be successful, but this isn't what we do it for. We need to always be jumping into an unknown. So take me back as to your training. You began as an actor, but then you obviously saw... Oh, no, not saw... really. really? Oh, no. I went to university, Manchester University, which is brilliant, to do drama, which is just like a drama degree at university. Okay. And I acted while I was at university, but I was terrible. Okay, so, so I, never, you I was I was literally you were just like when I was nineteen, you know, like doing stuff on stage. Okay, but that must inform your directing, though. Yeah, it probably does, but it's a long time ago now. So I sort of, I, I mean, I tell you what it informed, what it did. It made me want to become a director because I realised that I was never in the moment. I was always outside it, thinking about a bigger picture. And my friends who were acting were just kind of in it and really. And I was like, oh, that's really weird. You can be so engrossed. So it made me decide to become a director. And your empathetic street yeah. enables you to see. Every actor's perspective, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, I, I hope so, you know, and I think for me it's this a really important thing that when, you know, a group of people come to work together to make something, the responsibility that we all have to each other as humans and, um, you know, we're often being paid, publicly funded, um, uh, and when we're not, when it's not just that, it's about other people who've given us money to make what we make philanthropic, you know, I take all that responsibility really seriously. And also, it's really important to me that there is an atmosphere that we're all respected as individuals with what we're creating, so that what people take home at night is something positive, rather than, you know, we there's always been this kind of stereotype that sort of problems and kind of, I don't know, uh, what's the word, conflict can create great theatre, and I think questioning can create great theatre, but I can't bear the fact that we would set up conflict just for its own sake. Can I take you back to the creation of, of the National Theatre of Scotland, when you referenced before uh, the vocabulary used in that advert for the role of artistic director, how satisfying is it for you that you were the genius they were <laughs> looking for? And how, how does that sit with you? It's bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's bollocks. It's total bollocks. Um, <laughs> it's very kind of you even to put it on a piece of paper. No, it's, um, I think that's... 
I think that people, we often say this, but people really overuse that word. You know, I think um, John Tiffany and Enda Walsh once said to me when we were talking about the different things that we all believe in and what we all do, and um, what they said to me is, you're somebody who creates worlds that people can make things within as an artistic director. And um, I think that genius are the people who, are, who, who really change form and who are the very, very pure artists. What I do is, I, th I definitely think of myself as an artist, but what I do is I create environments for artists to exceed their potential in and then I interpret that work. I don't, I'm, they're the, that's the genius. The genius is the people who give us the nub of the art that we then interpret. I oh, know there's, a, well, there's a, a streak of, you know, genius there in, in, in enabling other people and envisioning that world as well. Well, that's ego, isn't it? In a positive way. Mm. I mean, in a way that I don't feel, you know, it's like my ego is satisfied by knowing that I've been the person that, you know, supported David to write this play to the best that he could be. Or whatever, and I find that really exciting. How do you measure success then? How, what's the measure of success um, for you? I think it's very instinctive, isn't it? I feel it's whether you feel you've done your best work, whether you've communicated to an audience, whether you've done it with integrity, and it's a sound piece, really. That's the criteria you yeah, measure? Yeah, I think so. And obviously as an artistic director there's loads of other things. Which are, you know, but I sort of take them for granted, you know, like, I need to get good audiences, make money with the theatre, all those kind of things, but, but that's just part of the job. They're not really my measures of success, they just need to be achieved en route. What's your rule of thumb then? So you go from National Theatre of Scotland to your dream job in the Royal Court. Mm. It seems that you uh, run a very democratic ship, you open mm. the doors, you give the keys to the writers, mm. and that's how you, mm. how you run your ship? Well, yes, because I, I, I sort of believe in sort of, I, I really, really deeply believe in democracy and I believe that my job is, is to lead not by knowing all the answers or through a hierarchy, but by, but, but by giving the right people the right opportunities to be empowered and to, and to, and to, and to make the things happen. Um, and that's definite leadership, but it's not about me knowing all the answers and keeping a kind of fearful structure in place that everyone just has to kind of work within. I, all, I absolutely know that we're always bigger than the sum of our parts if people are encouraged to kind of behave in a certain way. Of all the roles um, that you've had, which have you learned the most from? Which was the steepest learning curve for you? If I'm really honest, probably setting up National Theatre of Scotland because it was from absolute zero. And I, you know, I walked into that office on the first day and there was nobody, not even a bank account, didn't have a computer, not even a chair or anything. And it was starting out from scratch and with the most extraordinary team of people. We were just doing it because we didn't know any better, but probably when I look back, that's the thing I learnt the most from, definitely. And how do you select the people that's around you? I know it's obviously people who uh, can question yeah. your viewpoint. Yeah. I think it's about people who are brilliant, who you have an instinctive kind of connection with and something who you feel, fearlessness is really important. Um, people who believe in, in terms of what we do, people who believe that theatre has got no restrictions, people who believe that theatre can make change happen in some way, even if that's by one person in an audience feeling something different or by one extraordinary community workshop and somebody experiencing something different throughout that and I really believe those small changes can happen with what we do so it's about those people as well 
And it's also about people, like we say, who are different to me, who make work differently to me, who make me think about things differently. Was there... Uh... And laughter. I'm very silly. <laughs> are I'm you? Really How silly, silly are you? I'm unbelievably silly. Ask this cast. I really, really feel that you don't have to be... You don't have to behave as a grown-up to do any of this. In situations, some situations you do, but I really think it's important to stay giddy. Tell me more about that, so then what Well, else? you know, so for example, one of the kind of jokes that I, we always do, which I got from Frantic Assembly, but is that, you know, people, when everyone goes out of the room, everyone hides in the rehearsal room. And, of course, you do it to the cast once, and they'll think it's really a bit weird, and now everybody just adores it. And it's just a, just the thing about playful energy. You know, you can get tired. So it's all that thing about, you know, just having fun, really, and, and feeling very blessed that these are our jobs. You know, people are slogging it out, and a lot of people don't even have jobs. And just about celebrating that, rather than going to the dark side and thinking, isn't this difficult, and, you know... Yeah, do you take it home with you? It's a 24-7 job? Yeah, totally. It totally yeah. is, yeah. You know, I've got teenage kids, they've sort of grown up with it all, but, yeah. Uh, the new directors of the Abbey Theatre, Neil Murray and Graeme McLaren, are coming from the National Theatre yeah. of Scotland, which you created from scratch. They're very different beasts, um, the National Theatre of Scotland and the Abbey Theatre. Yeah. If they were seeking advice, what piece of advice would you give them? You, would it. you, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, they are, you know, Neil was with me right at the beginning, setting up the National Theatre of Scotland. He's an amazing, amazing visionary person about art and about producing and about, you know, he's somebody who really enables the artist while really passionately believing in the bottom line. Um, and it's a very, very rare, the person that can do both of those things. And Graham McLaren is, a, is, a, is an extraordinary sort of wild, brilliant man who... Who, who, who? Everybody who comes into his sort of circle just feels thrilled and challenged and loved by. Um, the, what advice would I give them? I think the advice. Well, when I started National Theatre Scotland, I think I would give them the same advice: is that often what things need is not that you know everything about them; is that you hold a mirror up to them and you can make the change happen. So you don't need to think, "Oh my God, I haven't grown up in Scottish theatre." What you need to go is, oh my God, that bit looks amazing, that bit looks amazing. You, what it is about making people see what they are differently. Because we all get entrenched in the ways that we are. And when I went to Scotland, everyone was like, oh, Scottish theatre's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this. And I just went, no, but you're, that's amazing, that's an amazing play, that's a brilliant thing. So it's about uncovering those and holding those mirrors up. That's what like, They will do that, though. There's a, there's a freedom in not being entrenched. Yeah, I in. think so. Culturally entrenched, I think we all become culturally entrenched. You know, I started at the Royal Court and I'd never worked at the Royal Court properly. And in a way, that made everyone a bit scared to begin with. But actually, I'm sort of going, so what? That you used to do it like that. You shake it up. Well, yeah. And it's and it, the thing, it's not shaking it up for its own sake. Because, you know, you get people who come into business and go, right, fuck it, I'm going to, you know. It's not about that. It's about just asking the questions and going, can we do things in a different way? You know, you speak so passionately. Uh, and it's still the passion is still there for yeah, 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 huge, it, yeah. and that enthusiasm. But you talk about approaching different plays for different audiences and and all of that. But was there a play for you that changed your worldview and your thinking and sparked for you? I think um, I think in terms of a play. Well, there were two things. One, my, my on my dad's bookshelf, there were the Arnold Wesker trilogy. And I remember reading this trilogy, and kind of, I must have been about sort of 13 or 14, and just thinking the story in there was extraordinary in the art. So that was one thing. And then when I went to university, I read Top Girls by Carol Churchill, 
when I was 18, I was like, my God, I had no idea that theatre could be like that, like that play. Just everything in it just was like, that's extraordinary. So that I think that probably was one thing. And then in terms of going to the theatre, it was um, the Edinburgh Festival many years ago. Um, Robert Lepage, Seven Streams of the River Ota, this incredible piece that he did, which had seven parts to it. And the first year, he only had made two of the parts. It was kind of work in progress. And I just remember going to see that just being totally blown away by the power of storytelling and fearlessness of what theatre is. Amazing. I think I should let you go and, um, <laughs> on that note uh, and let you go and actually have some lunch. Vicky oh, Felsen, it has been a pleasure speaking thank to you. Thank you so much. Likewise, thank you. Thank you.